as we consider this passage, I think that it's a little bit uh, odd for us to interact with the question of why angels are being referenced here seemingly out of the clear blue. Why does, as last week we looked at Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, and then all of a sudden we're jumping into, to which of the angels has he ever said that kind of stuff to? So we're kind of thinking, ah, that's a little bit uh, maybe an odd flow. Where exactly is the argument of angels coming from? Why is he addressing this at such length? It might be a bit foreign to us, but hopefully we can draw our hearts and minds into the original audience and then make sense of it from there. Angels have, as maybe you would consider even in our popular culture, the sense of um, uh, a point of connection for us. We will see little figurines that are angels We will see them in precious moments. I don't even know if you know what those are, if your parents collected them at some point. I think they were alive in the 80s and so forth. It was precious moment collection, and we see angels there. And then at times we'll put them on top of a Christmas tree or so on and so forth. And angels have always been that sense in a greeting card where we we have a point of access seemingly with heaven and its blessings, heaven and its benefits. Heaven and its kindness. Some sort of point of access with heaven and the God of heaven through these intermediaries, these angels. It's a bit more safe. It's a bit more cautious to deal with angels, perhaps, than to deal with God. And so we have this sense with angels, they're less controversial. They're a little bit easier to approach and we receive straight benefit from them. Uh, less concern over wrath and justice, righteousness, holiness. We have a point of access to heaven is my point. Maybe I can clarify with a thought. Well, when I was eight or nine years old, I think it's somewhere around there, I just turned 33 years old um, last week. So um, when I was eight or nine, uh, there was a program on television and popular culture that kind of reinforced this idea. Our family really enjoyed it, and we watched it. It was a show called um, Highway to Heaven. I don't know if you ever heard of that, um, if that makes sense to you or not. Michael Landon was the key angel of the program. He's Pa from Little House, if that makes point, uh, point of reference for you. And he continued that legacy kind of in this program of, you know, the, the, the father that he was to Laura and the others, this, this perfect uh, dad, right? And uh, Michael Landon had that uh, presentation also in this other program, Highway to Heaven. And the, the backdrop is, this, the point is, this is kind of how we've kind of come to think of angels and uh, see them as these intermediaries between us and God, right? In the program, some will have a crisis moment, Michael Landon, if you ever watched this episode, he was an angel that was on probation. Okay, that was the backdrop of the show. He was on probation trying to get his wings back, right? So this is where we're kind of coming up with our, what is called angelology, our, our theology or biblical view of these angel beings. So popular culture presents it in a show. We enjoy it as a family, warm, touching spotlight. And he is on probation, hoping to get his wings back. And the way that he'll get them is he'll get an assignment. And the assignment was you. And, you know, you're working feverishly on 
your little kingdom you're trying to build for yourself, right? And then the things begin to implode on you. You're losing all the things. Maybe you have a gambling addiction, and that was what the point of the program was about to address. Uh, how it's better to live a more family-oriented life. So Michael comes onto the scene, or whatever his name was on the program. He's got the assignment from who is called the boss, right? The, uh, uh, or the man upstairs, however we speak of that in popular culture. He receives, the boss gives uh, the angel the assignment. He shows up in your, in your crisis moment, and he explains to you, in hopes to get his wings back, how it's better, and the boss is coming, uh, I'm coming on the boss's behalf to encourage you. And help you see, and then Michael kind of goes over, uh, that is Michael Landon, the angel there, and he has this meeting with the boss uh, on a separate scene, and it's just a light that's unapproachable, right? And so, see, it's easier for us to deal with Michael, or it's easiest for us to deal with angels as the servants of God than approach God himself. So we have an access to God or his majesty through these intermediary beings. Uh, Michael rescues us in a situation. He tells us it's better to live a more moral life and to receive the good life again, and we're strengthened, and we find out the boss has a plan for our lives. Angel leaves the scene and goes on to his next assignment. Another kind of building on that analogy of, again, how it is that we view angels, how they've come to have this kind of warm spot in this mythology about us as a culture uh, and point of context with a biblical culture. Uh, there was another program. Um, uh, I think this was more in the 90s, uh, from 80s now to 90s. And angels are still kind of somewhat a hot topic. I think Hallmark has kind of taken over that, that, that Hallmark channel. It's taken over that branch of television programming. But the idea of these warm intermediaries where we receive the blessings of heaven without dealing with heaven itself, they, 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 they get it. They understand us and they make a way and a point of access. Roma Downey um, was an angel, and maybe you watched her at Saturday night at 8 o'clock on a program called Touched by an Angel, right? And it's the same concept. She approaches you in your moment of crisis. That, this is what we think when we think of, I don't necessarily want to deal with the boss, I don't want to deal with this need of a prophet curing my ignorance. I don't want to approach a priest who will deal with my guilt if I confess that I'm guilty. And I don't want to like, have a lord or a king reign over me. So verses 1 through 4, he is our prophet, priest, and king. Okay, for us as we approach heaven, it's easier to deal with like not all of that, but to deal with like the blessings, the intermediaries. Not come by the mediator, that is, come by Christ. He's too controversial and, and difficult. It's easier to come by just rain on me, some blessings in my moment of crisis. I don't need a cure. I just need a little help. Because you know, if I come by Christ, I, I come unto his kingdom. But if I come by way of an angel from the boss on assignment, I can continue my kingdom and they'll kind of just help me keep it going. So she appears kind of this touch by an angel. You're, you're, you're blown away to find out that you discover, you think, or you suspect of her. She is this angel unawares, maybe. She is this individual that is a heavenly psychologist. And she explains to you, on behalf of the boss, the idea that it is better for you. You know, God has a purpose for your life. And he's not here to control and take over. He's just here to help you in what you're doing. 
And, and so we see, okay, great, so I get the blessings from heaven, I get the benefit without having to submit to heaven or come unto heaven on heaven's terms. He sees that I got kind of a good thing going, and yet I have some challenges, and he's sending the mediaries to, like, you know, help me buck up and then get through this tough time. And then I'm back on to discovering the benefits of designing my own kingdom and living under my own authority. And this is kind of how we have come to view angels as these intermediaries between us and heaven. We receive the benefits and the blessings without dealing with heaven's God. We have access through these intermediaries, then coming by way of the mediator, Christ Jesus alone. It's just easier that way. The writer of Hebrews is kind of drawing our hearts to the same kind of concept of how the, these here in Rome, this community here, is struggling with thinking angels to be on par with the Son of God. Thinking that these messengers are like the Son. And that we can approach heaven by them and receive their benefits and their blessings And here, in a quest for the apostle to address the church, we are misplaced to put our affections upon them. We are misguided and sinfully pursuing worship of any other being than Christ Jesus alone. We are not receiving heaven's benefits and blessings by easier means than coming by Christ alone. There is no name that is worthy of worship, praise, and adoration, but Christ Jesus alone, including Michael Landon, Roma, and her role. We come by Christ alone. We worship Christ alone. This is the challenge of the book of Hebrews this morning for us, that our gaze is indeed too low, Our devotion misguided, our honor is misplaced if we think of receiving heaven's benefits and access apart from Christ Jesus alone. So what is the source of the discussion? Perhaps you say, okay, I see that in verse 4. You're looking there in chapter 1, verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The question is, okay, why though? Why are these angels taking center stage historically here in chapter 1, where it begins to wrangle between Jesus and angels? Where is it coming from? Well, look over in chapter 2, and I'll show you where this particular congregation here is standing in a long tradition of understanding from the Old Covenant regarding how they view angels as messengers. Ministers, Why are they being so revered? Why are they tempted to worship angelic beings? If you look with me in chapter 2, look at verse 2. This is a little insight into how they're they're thinking about angels and why they're tempted to honor, adore, and worship them. Verse 2, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Okay, so what is he doing there? What message is he referring to that proved reliable? And it was, how did it come to us? It was declared by angels. What message is that? That the old covenant people are wrestling with. The law. 
Right? So they have high reverence for, we'll see in chapter 3, where he begins to discuss Moses versus Christ, the servant versus the son. So who is this community? Indeed, Jewish believers who have a high reverence for what? The old covenant, the law. And this is going to be the the contrast throughout the book. New and old covenant, contrast. The new is better. Jesus is better. Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. And so it's this constant contrast between an old covenant, remember going back versus going forward and persevering in Christ. And so here they have this reverence for angels. Why? Because that old covenant that they adore and love and are possibly returning to came to them how? It was declared by angels. And so there is this high reverence for the servant that brought us it that declared it to us, that delivered it to us. We honor not just the message, but the messenger. Maybe this is helpful to you. I was working through the Westminster Catechism this morning, uh, and we were dealing with Mary, and this sense of veneration of Mary. Right? So, So, not for evangelicals, for Roman Catholic doctrine. And, and that idea that there is honor upon her as the servant, right? There's veneration of her. There's prayer on behalf of her or in her name as we consider the virginity of Jesus' birth. Mary, Mary. So then we're, 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 we're accentuating the servant. We're too highly prizing the servant rather than the Savior, right? It's disproportionate. Same here with the concept of reverencing angels. People loving the Old Covenant text are loving. We've received the law. And not only have we received it, but we have received it by angels. So immediately the apostle to the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus has a more excellent name than them. Thus, this is where the argument is coming from. Because they love the law. They've received the law. It was declared by angels. Look with me at one more text where we see it was delivered. Acts 7. Go back just with me just a little bit to see where this is not an isolated comment here in Hebrews 2. It was thoroughly the understanding in Acts 7 also when Stephen, if you recall, Stephen was being stoned, right? And he is here declaring the supremacy of Christ. And he is declaring it, he is getting ready to be executed on behalf of his Christian faith. Here in Acts chapter 7, look with me in verse 53. Well, I'll just begin in verse 51. Here's Stephen just prior to his death. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, and ears you have always resisted the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Back in our text of Hebrews. So you see here this idea of how those who prize the law prize not only its contents as they understand it, but they also prize the messenger disproportionately as the ones who declared it and delivered it. So these angels took on this sense of worship, adoration, and praise. 
Yet it is indeed that the law was, as we look at Acts and we look at Hebrews 2, it is clear from the text of Scripture that the law did somehow between God and Moses. If you go back to that context where Moses is on the mountain and he's actually receiving the Ten Commandments, there's no mention there really of angels that are functioning as media, uh, intermediaries between God and Moses. Yet clearly coming out of that, that is the reference that angels were mediating the law, somehow serving Moses as they were executing God's divine will to Israel, to the servant Moses. And then clearly Stephen speaks that way here as he is dying. And also the writer of Hebrews here, it is a sense of well-received understanding that they declared and delivered the law as servants of God. But the issue here in Hebrews is that the one whom they declared, right? It's, it's not just the delivery of the law. It's not even just the deliverance or the declaration of the law, but the one in whom it did declare is the substance of the law. Not the servants, but the substance of the law is its purpose, is its point of worship. It is Christ, not the messengers, but the message. It's getting disproportionate, right? So same with Mary, as I explained to you a moment ago. It's not the servant but it is the Savior. It isn't the messenger, but it's the message that they declared that is worthy of our worship. So who is the substance of its message? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fullness of the law. We saw that last week, right, in the Mount of, Mount of Transfiguration. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, what was its point? What was the point of the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah was there, prophets, Moses was there, law, and Christ is there. It's good for us. We'll build one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for... Shh! This is my son. Listen to him. And then Elijah and Moses disappeared and they saw only Christ who is the substance and the fullness of the law and the prophets. So it's not the messengers but the message. They are in service to the Son. Christ is the fullness. Now we must listen to Him. So there is this morning, as we walk through the text with the thought of angels, why is this argument even here as you're considering they were messengers and those who received its message received not just the message but the messengers themselves. And so he is coming back to point out yet again that Jesus is better. Jesus is far superior to anything we have in the Old Covenant. He is the substance of all. And he's going to do this with an argument from the Old Testament. Why does that only make sense? Because they're going back under the Old Covenant. And so he's going to argue how masterfully from the Old Covenant. So the rest of the chapter 1 is going to be saturated with Old Testament literature. Because it's not. He's trying to say, this isn't something new. And this is a word of instruction for you and I as we are Christian readers. How do we read our Old Testament? with Christ at the center. And he's showing us, Jesus 
didn't start when he was born. The glory of Christ wasn't only taught us in the manger and from that point forward. And he's going to say, Jesus is far better and let me state it. Not just with a bunch of brand new texts that they're going to say, well, let me show you from the old covenant that he is everything that it spoke of. So this morning with you as we walk through the text, I want to come together that if you would with me consider four very concrete ways in which Jesus is found to be supreme to all others. Your challenge this morning might not be angel worship. I haven't met many of you in discussing your testimonies, the role of Michael Landon in your life, or the critical role of Touched by an Angel on your DVR. So that might not be the point of challenge very specifically for you this morning. But as we all struggle with God's plan in our lives, right? Why do we struggle with it? How many of you struggled this week with God's plan for your life? No need to raise hands. I already know. You're all guilty. So no need. Whoever didn't raise their hand, we'll pray for you. So my challenge this week wasn't to look at old reruns of Highway to Heaven. I gave up on that, by the way, when I was eight or nine because I was home alone watching Highway to Heaven and um, people came to break into my home. Um, and he didn't show up on assignment um, for the boss. Um, thankfully, the police got there. But nonetheless, um, Highway to Heaven was on the TV. Um, so uh, my sense of angel worship went out very early. Uh, they, they, they were nowhere to be found. Um, so yet, we, we all do struggle with God's plan for our life. And, and the reason that we struggle with it is because, if we're honest, brass tacks, rubber meets road, it's because we don't really want what he wants. We want what we want. And we want an angel to show up on assignment and give it to us. Um, and the, so there's little points of frustration in our walk with the Lord because of his supremacy and the point of wrestling with our own sin because we want what we want and we just want him to give it. Um, but that's not the plan. And that's not the point of why he gave us his son. So that like our kingdoms where they're a little bit faulty will be patched and repaired, but otherwise good to go. Uh, He gave us the supremacy of the son in order that we might be drawn in to his kingdom. Find well-being. Find a sense of purpose and meaningfulness as we're caught up into Christ who is supreme. Not caught up into us and our own little kingdoms That's the point. So if we look at it, I want to say four very concrete ways from the text that Christ reigns supreme. And by coming unto him and acknowledging and joyfully, willfully submit to his supremacy, we will find that sense of meaning, well-being, and purposefulness in our lives. We submit our supremacy to his. So number one, as we look at the text, I'm just going to walk through the text. You're back there in Hebrews with me. Number one out of the four of very concrete ways in which Jesus is found to be supreme is number one, Jesus is supreme, you could have guessed, as the only son of the Father. Look at verse two, uh, excuse me, verse five. This is how he begins his argument. He already began it in verse four with saying, he has a more excellent name than theirs. 
4, and here is the grounds of his argument, he begins to argue for the supremacy of Christ. And he starts with the fact that he is the only son out of all of the heavenly myriads of beings. Verse 5, 4, to which of the angels did God ever say? Out of myriads and myriads, you remember Revelation. Revelation 5 at the point of exaltation of Christ after the resurrection. Myriads and myriads are worshiping him and adoring him. So it's not like there's a few. We're talking myriads, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these heavenly servants. And the writer is saying, for to which one of them, out of all of them, has he ever spoken to a single servant this kind of language? Quote, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, has he ever mentioned to any angelic servant, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now the quotation here that the writer is using to leverage his argument for the supremacy of Christ as the only son, that the father never made mention of this kind of sonship language to any other being except that man in time as you know him, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the only one that the father ever made that kind of statement. And the listeners are hearing the Old Covenant. They're hearing Psalm 2. They're sitting there hearing that this is a royal psalm. This is a psalm referring to the Messiah. No one ever disputed that. Psalm 2 was always received as a messianic psalm. That is always going to be anticipatory of God's Savior that He's going to send for His people. It was spoken in time, surely, Psalm 2, but it was to be fulfilled by God's Messiah. And here he applies that to no future Messiah. You didn't miss the boat by clinging to Christ. There isn't another fulfillment of Psalm 2 to come. It has found its consummation, its end. It was written with a goal in mind. And that goal in whom it was completed is the man in time, Jesus of Nazareth. He is God's only Son. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. So it is. How critical is it that the sonship of Christ be acknowledged by each of us this morning in relationship to our life with Christ? Consider how much the sonship of Jesus, that He is the only Son of the Father, consider how critical that is. I briefly rehearse for you how much we think of Jesus as the Son of God and how critical that is for our role as a writer rightly starts a massive argumentation for the supremacy of Christ with his function as the Son of God, that there's no one else. And we are saturated with the sonship of Jesus when he came into the world. At his birth announcement in Luke, do you remember the language of the angel? This will be the Son of of the Most High. It's the birth announcement of Jesus that we all read of. Now like, hey, this is going to be a guy named Jesus. He's going to do some pretty neat things. Or he is just a miscellaneous prophet in a long lineage of others. No, the birth announcement, this is the Son of the Most High. Then his baptism do you remember the announcement in Matthew at his baptism? Just before Christ, and we're 
going to look at this, another plug for our class this afternoon. We're going to be looking at the work of Christ on our behalf and His active obedience. Do you remember just before He went into the wilderness, for how many days? Forty? As a reader, is that interesting to you? Because you think of, oh wait, yeah, Israel went into the wilderness for 40 years. Interesting. And the obedient work of Christ, our Redeemer. 40 days in the wilderness. And just before he went, he was baptized, you recall. And the announcement from heaven was, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's critical for you in this very hour. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. It goes then from his baptism to his transfiguration that I covered with you this morning. Do you remember? Yes, listen to Elijah. That is, yeah, sure, read the prophets. Yes, listen to the law as that guiding principle in your life. That is, listen to Moses and shh. Don't exalt, honor, and worship them. But worship the substance of whom they prepared you to receive. This is my Son, listen to him. So we hear of the sonship of Jesus at the highest point of his revelation, that he is the Son of God, of the Father. Then it is resurrection. Do you remember the resurrection when he arose from the grave? Paul tells us in Romans 1, at the point of resurrection, he was designated, guess what? The Son of God. In power. His office of ascension, his kingly role that he reigns right now as Lord and King, both of the living and the dead. He was declared this powerful King at the point of resurrection. This is the Son of God in power. Now, I said to you just for a moment ago about the supremacy of Christ that to which one of the heavenly beings has God ever said, This is my Son? No other heavenly being. He has never suggested that He is a Father to any of the heavenly beings. He has never quoted language from the Psalms about, I will be to him a father, and to him he shall be to me a son. He's never said that, yet He does now say that to guess who? You. He says that to you because of Jesus. That's why it's so critical this morning that you've come to hear the word of the Lord. You come joyfully expectant because Jesus is the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. You have received the Son in whom the Father is well pleased, so you are also a son in whom the Father is well pleased. So also, women, you are daughters with whom the Father is well pleased. Jesus is supreme because he is the only son of the Father. Galatians, Paul says the same thing. If you want to jot this down, it's a beautiful text regarding your role hidden in Christ as the obedient son. Galatians 3.26. I'll just cite it for you. You don't have to look there. But listen to the language of how Paul also applies the thought of Jesus as the rightful son to each son and daughter 
who are hidden in him. Verse 26 of Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Consider secondly then from our text here of we saw Psalm 2 as the eternal son of God in verse 5 and the supremacy of Christ as the only son of the Father. There is no other Messiah or deliverer for God's people. But secondly, Jesus is supreme as the only redeemer. Look at verse 6. So there is no other redeemer or Messiah. There is no other son. There is no other redeemer for God's people. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, okay, so the beginning of the new creation, the beginning of our life in Christ, the supremacy of the firstborn was born into the world, he says, let all angels, all God's angels, worship him. So here in the text, you have two things happening in verse 6. This is also critical for your salvation. And so he's arguing this way about the supremacy of Christ. Look there in verse 6. He hits on first a touchstone of your faith. And that is, again, when he, you want to notice, brings the firstborn into the world. What blessed doctrine do we rejoice in that the firstborn was born into the world other than the incarnation? The great mystery that God became man and dwelt among us. This is the first step in us being redeemed, is the humiliation of Christ. What angel undertook that? What servant was a son? And then as a son was made like the children, that he might redeem all the children. The first portion that draws us to worship Christ. And also the angels are commanded. You also worship him. Is the fact that he entered into time. Was made like us in every way. Tempted as we are. Died in our place and was raised three days later. This is the gospel. So we acknowledge that he became like us, that he might redeem us, and God's servants, you cannot worship them, for they worship him. The supremacy of Christ as the only redeemer of God's people. There's two components. Incarnation, which is his humiliation, and his exaltation because of his resurrection. So we worship Christ as the God brings the firstborn into the world, the God-man. He says, let all of God's angels worship him because of his exaltation. So secondly, Jesus is supreme as the only redeemer. I want to encourage you already, start thinking about your struggle with, with God's plan for your life. How it's very clearly not going according to plan. Right? I don't know if you used to watch the A-Team or not, but that was like the best show in the 80s when I was a kid. I'd take that over Highway Heaven any time. And uh, at the end of every episode, um, uh, I think his name was Hannibal, if I recall. I had the van, figurines, the whole thing. 
And at the end of every episode, he would stand on the ledge of the van or at some point smoking his cigar of victory, and he would say, I love it when a plan comes together, because they always won, right? And yet you look at your life and you say, I I would love that too. I would love it if a plan would just come together. And, 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 and then, and then we, we, need to be, we need to be pushed in the direction by faith to the supremacy of our Lord. Wait a minute. An eternal plan is always put together. So the issue isn't the plan. The issue is my version of the plan. And so thus the rub Because we really don't want the plan, we really want our plan, and we want the plan to deliver our plan. So we need to be drawn into the supremacy of Christ. There is no other redeemer for your life. There is no other way to find forgiveness. There is no other way to find well-being. We have to embrace that by faith and encourage one another. Because every day we start out with our version of the plan. Because why? We sense it will give us peace if it works out on time. And if it goes the way we've calculated, then we'll have peace, we'll have well-being, we'll have meaning. Because we know what meaning is. Meaning is found in Christ. Peace is found in Him who saves. Including... Saving us from ourselves. Jesus is supreme as the only redeemer. Number two, even God's angels worship him. You mustn't worship and adore anything but the Son, who is the only redeemer. Number three, consider also the third of four ways in which Jesus from this text is supreme to all other beings. Number three, for you and I, as we would submit to God's plan for our lives, is to recognize that Jesus is supreme as the only eternal king. This is an issue of him freeing us from ourselves, freeing us from our tyranny of sin and death unto him and his kingdom that is better than the one we build for ourselves. Look at verse 8 and 9 where we clearly see this in the quotation yet again from the Psalms as he applies to the fulfillment and its goal being met in Jesus. But of the, uh, I'll start in verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds. Okay, so they're swift like wind is, is the image there. And his ministers, a flame of fire. So indeed, they are strong. They are capable. And we saw that throughout the biblical testimony of their ability to be swift, their ability to be quick and on the work in Revelation. And then we see them strong like fire as they administer God's eternal plan as we see them in the bowl judgments, etc. But then these are just servants and ministers, verse 8, but of the Son. He is not a minister. He is a son. We've already established that. And now of this Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you have hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. 
This is a quotation, as I said to you, in comparison to the ministers. He is a son, and not only is he a son, but he is a royal son. The only king that lasts, how long did the text say? That he will remain forever. And it's a psalm that we saw in time that didn't last forever. Psalm 45 applied to David and his household. So we see the beauty of David's kingdom, didn't we? In time, we saw him act courageously on behalf of the people of God, delivering them from their enemies, providing for them a sense of peace and relief, guiding them in the law. Yet it only lasted for a season. So we see yet again, this psalm is integral in its own setting. It's meaningful to the people of God as they hear it even in the moment. But it has a greater reality, doesn't it? It has an ultimate goal. That it served the people of God in time to recognize the strength of the Davidic kingdom. Yet also, they have eyes and they see the weaknesses of the Davidic kingdom. Yet they remember a covenant promise that God would one day rise up a king from the house of David. And his kingdom, O God, would remain forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is uprightness. And you have utterly hated wickedness and loved righteousness. And this is none other than Jesus of Nazareth in time. He is the Son of the Most High. He is the eternal King for God's people. So, back to your life. When you hear a text like that, and you know its goal is Jesus, and it's directly applied right here to the man in whom you say you are hidden for righteousness' sake, you love him as your Lord, you're pursuing him by faith with your life, what sense then does it make to continually, with a spirit of frustration, strive to build your own kingdom. With an attitude almost like, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to make it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make this thing work. I just need Michael Landon to show up on an assignment, bring this thing home for me. But when you move back to the supremacy of Christ, you recognize this kingdom is wood, hay, and stubble at best. I'm so frustrated underneath my attempts. I'm angry at home. I'm mad at my spouse for no reason. Well, just because she's the closest person. I'm frustrated at the job place. I feel like my life is going nowhere and there's really no sense of purpose and meaning. There is meaning. There is purpose. There is inner peace and well-being. But it isn't. You're right. It isn't in your own kingdom. Anger is banished. Peace is established when we recognize the supremacy of Jesus as the only eternal king and our Savior. So he saved me. 
not to make more of me. And just to kind of give me a little dose of heaven's blessings to make my kingdom otherwise all right and good and sound, but to deliver me from the tyranny of that self-kingdom and set me free in the kingdom of the Son, where there is heaven purchased and established peace, joy, well-being, happiness in Christ. This is why we must acknowledge that Jesus is indeed the only eternal king and is therefore supreme. The final and fourth, I need to wrap this up because the kids have been outrageously quiet today and I am burning my time. Number four, uh, the fourth reason from this text, quite obviously, as you would see, the supremacy of Jesus is bound in the fact that Jesus is supreme as the only God. The only God. There is no messenger, there is no prophet, there is no other priest, there is no other king, there is no other son. There is only the man, Christ Jesus, perfectly God, perfectly man, who is the Son, who is the Redeemer, who is the King, and is himself God Almighty. Beginning in verse 10, as we look at the supremacy of Christ as the only eternal King, and you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you, you are the same. And your years will have no end. The apostle here writing to the church, to you and I this morning, makes very clear that everything we can say about God, that is everything in creation, and the categories he covers, creation, providence, eternality, that is that God remains forever, there is no beginning and there is no end. And everything we could say about God and His immutability, that is that God cannot change. We confess that, don't we, about God the Father? And the writer is driving us to Jesus of Nazareth and saying every single thing we can say of God, we can say of Jesus. Because Jesus is God. So then I ask you yet again in your own life. If he is, you receive that he is redeemer. You receive that he is the son incarnate. You receive that he is the king. Now you come full circle and you submit that he is God. What sense does it make to take the brick and mortar of your own plan. Kick and cry against the kindness, merciful plan of God and demand that he send Michael, that is Landon, not Archangel, on an assignment and just make things a little bit more bearable and better. But if he is God, God only wise, his plan is always better. 
I'm asking you this morning to prayerfully consider that. That where there is disappointment and discouragement, things just aren't like, you know, you've got something more like this rather than this. Prayerfully submit it to the Lord that He who is supreme, Jesus, would reign supreme in your life and you'd submit with joy to His kingdom, surrendering your own. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would enable us to do that because we know 